you are listening to the ai ready healthcare podcast i'm your host anirban i lead a research group in technical university of darmstadt in germany where we translate ai solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery the purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced ai research from the mikai society here i talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of ai in healthcare opinion is whoever said it anything said here is not medical advice together let's make healthcare ai ready and once again i erase ideas rubbed against the grays of my brain obliterated drafting a design again plotting for the never ending end reworking redesigning unending months and days weeks and years time passed ideas changing crits received its unending the endless scribbles the bloody blotches on butter more changes and once again i erase you are listening to forever designing by rahul nair and we move on to today's episode of the podcast ai ready healthcare it is a wonderful day here in darmstadt it's really sunny and hot it's also very nice to really talk to someone whom i have been looking forward to have a podcast episode with we will hear more about daniel really soon but a quick intro to ourselves i am anirban i am the host of airedi healthcare podcast and today i have with me henry hi i'm henry i'm today's co-host and it's a pleasure for me to have you here today today we will be hosting daniel who is a consultant radiologist in University Hospital Köln and he is also one of the very front end in terms of the researchers who are trying to bring in the AI and radiology together he is quite active in the german radiology society in the european radiology society in bringing these stuffs forward and we are also collaborating with daniel on multiple projects so yeah welcome daniel yeah thanks for having me anirban it's a pleasure so traditionally we start the conversation with a little bit of your background who you are how was your let's say growing up into who you currently are so can you give us a little bit of that Yeah sure I'm Portuguese so both my parents are Portuguese and I followed a pretty normal I guess school career and then decided to pursue um, medical or medicine uh, as a study field um, after my graduation I wasn't really sure what to do afterwards but then I had a very pleasant experience in my final year with radiology so I actually went for that then yeah it was probably I would say a series of lucky incidences uh, where 
I met uh, Professor Mildenberger in Mainz where I was uh, starting my career as a radiologist and he really brought me into these uh, topics like, uh, yeah, let's say stretched reporting, AI and all that. And I guess it was a perfect fit because I was always interested in computers and was very kind of self-taught or, well, I had a lot of interest and then I started exploring, playing around. And yeah, so actually that was how I started with these topics. And then from there on, it was kind of, yeah, you know, um, keeping up the work and meeting other people, exchanging ideas. And then one thing leads to the other. And then after I finished my training as radiologist, I moved to Cologne and there things kind of took the next step and I met other people. And so, yeah, I became involved in the societies and that has been a pleasure too. And yeah, I enjoy that work a lot, let's say. Wonderful. So this is something that we have seen quite often these days that the new generation of physicians, uh, so radiologists, of course, in particular, but also other physicians, you have a technology background. Quite a few of you learn how to code. And that's really a wonderful thing because those who are more senior in the Mikhai society, they often talk about a disconnect in actually talking about technology in healthcare. So I really want to know a little bit about your exposure in technology. So why you are interested in technology? Well, if you want to start right from the beginning, actually, it was a kind of a funny story because uh, when computers first made their way into every people's homes, actually, my mom was doing translations. So she had, I don't know, for some reason, she had to remove the graphics card. I don't know why. And so everybody was playing games and I had nothing to do. So I obviously started playing around with the terminal, you know, just listing directories and playing around with files so that was where i kind of got interested into getting into the inner works of the computers and then i played around with html and ray tracing software and whatnot just to you know just to play around <laughs> that was of course at a later stage and then i got very interested in linux just because i didn't want to support big tech or whatever i don't know <laughs> probably was idealistic or something uh, and so I, I, I always had kind of an interest in yeah playing around with the machines and see what they could do for me instead of just clicking the buttons. And so, yeah, that was it, basically. But of course, I have no formal training. So all is just kind of playing around and not knowing stuff, but still maybe have a basic understanding, I would say. <laughs> So I think this is quite interesting as well, because Henry is also a proponent of open source, open world of computing. Yeah, exactly. And your story actually also reminds me of my very own background story, which we will not cover here because it is out of scope. But yeah, ex except for the fact that I ended up in computer science instead of medicine. So other question around this is basically you are talking about really more of like in a playful approach to computing. Did you also learn the coding in the same way or like how did you actually train yourself into programming stuff? Yeah, well, um, I mean, obviously, apart from maybe playing around with the terminal on a 268. I guess the first instance of programming was when a friend from school, he had this, it was called Povray, was a ray tracing software, but you somehow needed to write code and then you could render stuff instead of, you know, having a, what you see is what you get editor or something. So you needed to write code and then uh, 
when you wanted to place multiple objects, it was easier to have a kind of a for loop or whatever. So that was when I got into these first experiments with coding stuff. And I guess then when I started playing around with Linux, it was just, you know, you, you see what the computer can do and you start thinking, oh, well, I wanted to do this. So you need to figure out a way to write a script and so forth. And then actually I moved to Mac then later on after my graduation, also when I was already finished with my studies. Then actually I I was very unsatisfied with how the statistics software wasn't doing really much for me. I just needed to click and stuff. So I actually during a conference learned about R and this was really fascinating. So I really started investing a lot of time into R and uh, really enjoyed it. Well, back in Mainz, for example, I had a, a colleague that he was a professional IT guy and we started playing around with structured reporting and stuff. So I, I've been exposed to this along the way a lot. And I wouldn't say that I followed a plan. I never kind of took online courses or whatever. I just wanted something to happen. So I just Googled until it worked, Some basically, you know. Uh, and and then that was basically it, yeah. But it was it's it's nice because it's you know there's no pressure. You just play around and you get a very satisfying feeling of reward when things work out. So I actually like that. Yeah. So you were in mines. So you were trained as a radiologist in mines. Can you tell me briefly, like when this connection that computing and radiologist has a lot to offer, complement each other, that when you made really that connection? I mean, it was probably at the end of the studies when I was uh, in my final year, where I really noticed that obviously I liked math in school, I liked physics in school, and obviously radiology lent itself to that. I had a very brief experience in surgery after my studies, actually, but really didn't like the whole working on a ward thing and stuff. Sometimes think that because I put you know, basic computer experience in my CV, I guess Professor Mildenberger may have read that, or I don't know, or I showed some interest in computer stuff. And he he was one of the very first to work in PACs and stuff like that in, in Germany as a whole. And so we kind of, yeah, got together and started working on things and it was really pleasant. And But I guess, yeah, you know, things fall into place. So I was always interested in maths and physics and medicine and that was a good combination there and then from there you meet people that share same interests and and that's how things develop actually that's in my opinion a very impressive development i mean especially um the combination of technology the curiosity involved in this technology um domain in combination with medicine so maybe connecting to one point that you've mentioned earlier which is about the structured reporting this is one of our topics today Basically, uh, my question is at first, what is structured reporting actually? I mean, as a computer scientist, I can somewhat imagine what structured reporting in radiology could be, but I don't have any concrete understanding of it. Basically, when we write reports to the images we take or to the exams we perform, those reports are written like, I don't know, let's say a letter from me to another physician. So there is no form, there is no structure there. I can do whatever I want, use the language I want, use the terms I want and to describe whatever I may see or may not see. And then so 
and ideally to help the other physician understand the patient's condition and then uh, adjust his treatment to that. And that's fine, I guess, but there may be misunderstandings. If I like certain words better than my colleague, our reports will read very differently and the physician may get confused if there are slight variations in meanings that maybe I intend, but the other one doesn't. And what structured reporting actually tries to do is to solve that by kind of coming to a standardized terminology using kind of fixed outlines of a report. So maybe just imagine, I, I could say the kidneys are okay and the liver is okay. And the other one would say the liver is okay and the kidneys are, is okay. Just there's a variation in everything. And what structured reporting tries to say is, well, okay, you have this form, a report for this condition should be like that. So first kidneys, next liver, next spleen. And there's, because say for this condition, it's not relevant to specify more uh, with regards to the kidneys. You can say whatever you want to the kidneys, but if you are talking about the liver, please use these words in this specific order or whatever to really describe the situation so that, for example, the surgeon knows if he can operate on that case or not. So that's what structured reporting says or tries to do. And it's been around for kind of, I don't know, almost 100 years maybe because first instances were found in the very early 1900. Obviously, everything was paper-based back then, but they were trying to search for specific cases in these vast libraries. And they would have to read everything and maybe it was in the image, but it was not mentioned in the text because it doesn't need to and stuff. So yeah, first ideas were very early on and still we really didn't get to implement it. So we actually try to kind of keep on with that. Obviously in an electronic or digital form, it lends itself to, you know, having HTML forms or whatever. So you just pick from a dropdown list and so forth. I think that's that's really something that we need to kind of do in radiology because obviously lots of benefits come with that. I directly connect to that. So personally, I would actually think of such structured reports as something very useful for the clinical routine. I mean, it is a very efficient means of documenting things in a way that you can easily retrieve information afterwards. And maybe it's even faster than always writing a prose text. So what are the particular reasons or maybe the main reasons why this is not widely adopted? Yeah, I guess the main reason is because since speech recognition was introduced, we do not write our reports, we just dictate them. And since I can talk very fast, but write very slow, and even slower, click through very obscure form or whatever, I guess, kind of using speech recognition, just dictating stuff in no order, just as things pop into your head, it's unbeatable in terms of efficiency, because it's so fast. And since I have no requirements to include specific items, for example, in my report, I can do a report on a very complex CT scan with three sentences and very few words, and it's still going to be somewhat accurate and nobody could really say, well, that's a bad report, you know. So actually, I think that that's the main reason why structured reporting is competing against something kind of unbeatable in terms of efficiency. And since healthcare is very much efficiency driven and uh, cost aware and stuff, it's very cumbersome to go through lengthy forms just to, you know, be able to, in the end, have data that you can retrieve, which would be obviously amazing in terms of science and everything. But it's simply 
not reimbursed. It's nobody forces you to do it. Nobody cares if you do it. So just dictating is very, very efficient. And I guess actually, uh, apart from other things, maybe that play a role too, but I guess this is the single most relevant issue is that structured reporting is takes too much time. And I would envision that sometime soon, hopefully someone will have a solution where you can dictate but then these forms get filled and maybe some kind of speech assistant series style or whatever says, oh, well, you forgot to mention this and this. Could you please just add that? And then you can sign off your report. So something like that, that makes it more interactive. I guess that that's, that's the main issue there. Yeah, that actually is something that I haven't really thought of. So yeah, totally makes sense. Such a solution which basically infers the structured report from that short unstructured report. Do you know if there's something like that in the making or? Yeah, so it actually on the market, I don't think there is any solution. I have seen vendors promoting similar things during conferences. I'm not sure if they have taken it to the market. I know that there's one company that is actually trying to do that. It works okay, I guess. I've seen a prototype. It's only in English, obviously, for now, but I, I think this could really make a change. For example, things that I didn't consider myself when I started working on this topic is you basically have your right hand on your mouse and you interact with the images and you have the, in the left hand, you have this microphone, which, which you can control the dictation software. And just moving the mouse from the images to the report, clicking something and moving it back is so inefficient that you won't do it. So... I would guess that we are not too far away from that. I think like the technology is there. Obviously, I, my mobile phone can understand what I want from him in certain limits, of course. But I guess we should not be too far away. The, the question is, will it be viable on the market? Why should you develop such a software if for hospitals would be hesitant to buy it because they don't see the added benefit? You know, once, of course, you switch it to, well, you will get more reimbursement if you do structured reporting, or you will get less if you don't do it, which is, I guess there are some examples of that in the US actually, where people are required to have certain parts of the report structured, then I think it will make much more sense for the vendors and then hopefully would not be as far away. I hope since we have been battling with this topic for many decades, I, I would hope that we will get there in the next one. <laughs> Let's keep optimistic. So I guess this is also a point that you have mentioned that what we really need to show is the efficiency of structured reporting, if it is more efficient than the traditional way of doing it. So I guess one way of showing efficiency is basically on the downstream tasks. So for example, could be how efficient it is to really bring the most important points to the other doctor, the physician who actually ordered for the report and getting the radiology report back from the radiologist. I guess the other question probably is also around the idea that if we are talking about these deep learning methods, which we are planning to train on these big radiology data sets, unstructured reports or this sort of text later style thing won't really take us there. And even for training these deep learning methods, we are probably needing something which is much more structured and machine readable. So what's, because you wrote a paper, a proof of concept paper. So can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts in that? Yeah, so 
I guess the idea behind that was, I mean, obviously from a technical point of view, it's, it's very, very simple. It's, I mean, it's so obvious. One would could question why even write a paper about that. But I think it serves to show that if you use structured reporting, you can do much more with your data than you would be able to do with the current reports. I mean, as you mentioned, measuring, for example, downstream efficiency is very, very difficult because so much of what we do is very hard to measure and it's never measured. So it's it's hard to prove efficiency gains. But you could say, well, once you have structured reporting, not only could you train AI algorithms, or you can use that data for virtually anything you want to do. I mean, if I write a report about an ankle fracture, for example, I could use that information as a trigger to kind of get billing done or whatever, you know, basically, radiology is such an important part in every workflow in the hospital, that if you have structured data at that point, you can trigger so many workflows that speed up efficiency or uh, benefit your efficiency. And also you can do deep learning, which is kind of, you know, people consider that as technically something very advanced. It's not a simple kind of rule-based algorithm where you say, when this is yes, then please do that. And it was also to show that if you have structured data, because many people train AR algorithms on kind of reports that they analyze with NLP and then they use this as a label and then because the labels are somewhat dirty maybe more data is needed or whatever and I mean the use case we chose was very simple but with very little amount of data but very highly structured reports you could use that to do something nice let's say and I guess that that's the idea behind it so so I guess we there's a kind of a very big untapped potential of reusing data from the clinical workflow to do other things that nobody, well, people think about it, but it's so hard at the moment. And just showing that you can help by structuring reports in one specific department of your hospital, that that's probably something I wanted to show. So by the way, we are talking about this paper from 2019 and is the first author it was published is in insights into imaging the full title of the paper is structured report data can be used to develop deep learning algorithms a proof of concept in ankle radiograph so to all our listeners please go ahead and read the paper this is a really nicely done paper and this is i think one of the first in this direction so yeah it's a really a must to look at yeah and i guess around this paper i have sort of a question that i always think in my mind is that let's say there are sort of if we break down the radiology report then there are I guess two main sort of blocks. One is more about the observations. And then from those observations, you are making the second level, which is about your informed decision about the diagnosis and then differential diagnosis and stuff like that. But really the way AI algorithm and all this hype was about doing this second part, whereas that's not very easy because you have so much of prior knowledge. You have so much of the patient's information, which is not image driven. But doing the first part, which is more about the quantification of what we can see on the image itself, is relatively, again, structured. And you know, for this type of images, these are the sort of things that we are looking for. So 
can you tell us briefly like why we are so obsessed with the diagnosis and not really the quantification part that leads to diagnosis yeah i guess it's easier to understand that kind of making a diagnosis is relevant so you know it's very obvious whereas if you say well my algorithm can quantify this and that then people would say oh well that's nice what do we need this for i would guess that if you're a startup company and you want to pitch your project to say venture capital or whatever then you know saying well my algorithm is so good i can make diagnoses and we make the radiologist obsolete so everything's fine we'll just get tons of money and everything will be awesome it's so much a better pitch than just saying well i can quantify liver lesions in mr and classify them according to i don't know lirat scheme and then i need the radiologist to Uh, really draw a synthesis I, i guess you know it's not that obvious it's not that interesting maybe and i guess since ai and stuff had such good performance on imagenet and stuff i guess it was very obvious for technical people that well you have images you want to have a diagnosis well let's fire up the algorithms and as you said much of the information that we use to kind of draw a conclusion on that specific patient is lab values his general history uh, history of treatments and and so much more information that is not you know structured as well because if it was structured then maybe you could say well if the algorithm makes kind of a diagnosis based on visuals and uh, image and takes all the other stuff then it's probably easy to you know draw a good conclusion because in the end it's also kind of rule based very simple stuff that we do in our heads but since this is i guess not feasible in the near future people started to say well you know let's focus on diagnosis and stuff i guess it was very obvious to say well image network so let's do medicine and that's it maybe you know i see i mean i totally understand like why the first wave of startups kind of got into that bandwagon but really even now if you really look at a majority of the work there is so much about let's say let's do diagnosis i mean if i am a venture capitalist who has an understanding of how healthcare works i would really question then what's really your business model because no right. hospitals in the first like the developed world will say that okay let's replace radiologists because you are saying whatever in your method is good at for this particular type of problem right. where is really the business there who will buy my product Yeah, I I mean that's a good question. I don't know because healthcare is kind of resource intensive but also limited in the resources available that I guess there is little money to spend on nice to have products. If you are making a diagnosis for a very specific use case then you either need to really very very meticulously prove that this is improving patient outcome without putting too much of a burden on healthcare in general or you won't have a good business case I think. It might be different in places where you know stuff is even shorter let's say but then you could again ask well there are a number of exams that we perform maybe that really do not add too much so let's just focus on those that really matter and the other ones well there's no stuff for that so we just simply don't do it the other thing is that what people obviously do and and had some success in the US for example was requesting extra reimbursement for using ai on a very specific narrow use case and i guess that for the healthcare system in the us it worked on that specific use case so for example for 
ischemic stroke, there's added reimbursement, but it's a very complex model. And I actually didn't really understand it, but the uh, idea was of not placing too much burden on the healthcare system. I guess in, in, in Germany, it wouldn't work because kind of, I would say that, you know, staff is not really that short, at least in academic hospitals, let's say. So yeah, actually, this is a very important question. And, and I guess just to, to close that argument, maybe is, you know, people basically, from a technical point of view, this makes absolutely sense. You say, well, this is an, a thing I can solve. I'll just solve that. For example, detect ischemic stroke in, in CT, and then I'll make that a product. But that's not what you need in healthcare. You know, detecting ischemic stroke, I can do that, and I can do multiple other things, and unless the algorithm is so cheap that it makes some sense, nobody will buy it. And I think you actually, if you would want to start a startup and be successful, I would argue that it makes more sense to analyze what are the needs, you know, what could be the cost I can ask to solve that need, and then you go forward because you may encounter nice opportunities where you can make a very big impact at low cost, I guess. But they are probably technically more difficult to solve, or I don't know. So there will be a trade-off, and we will see where things will go. But yeah, I, I think much of the first wave of startups was just, this is technically doable, let's make it a startup. So you've uh, already mentioned that one paper that we would like to talk about later in this podcast, but now I would like to make a quick interlude talking about the research perspective on deployment of AI solutions. So as you've already mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast, the two of you have already been working together on different projects. One of these projects, which is very recent, is the EFA KI project. So yeah, could you maybe elaborate on, on that, what the EFA KI project is and what it does for the radiology community? Sure. So, um, yeah, we were lucky enough to to get funding for this project, and uh, we talked a lot about it in the beginning, Anirban and I. So what this actually tries to do is bring together, again, structured reporting and AI, and also be scientifically, I guess, interesting for you guys. It's not, you know, fire up the next uh, standard AI workflow, but what we wanted to do is basically, if you're thinking about a workflow in a hospital, you have radiologists reporting on stuff and they ideally would do structured reporting. And then in the background, you have an, a continuous learning algorithm that can take, you know, for example, you just specify, well, learn this field. And this is a drop-down field with three items or so. And then the AI algorithm will watch for this field, will watch for the corresponding studies. And with every case that comes in, it will try to learn and to get better. And then once it gets to a specific threshold of performance, it will notify the user, for example, here I am, I could probably take over this task. Then the user or the admin, let's say, decides, well, okay, let's, let's see how you perform. And then with every new case, again, the AI algorithm that has already been trained inputs his predictions into this field. And so instead of the radiologist being the first to pick this field and decide and the AI to learn, now the AI starts pre-populating this field. And then you can just basically check if it's correct or not. And the idea behind this is if you set up such a workflow, then you obviously wouldn't need to buy a product. Instead, you would just train your own and then maybe once you have enough of these algorithms, they kind of take all of these small input fields and just 
pre-process everything. And th so this could, in theory, lead to efficiency improvements or, I don't know, notify somebody of urgent findings or whatever. And then, obviously, since... But this, these are topics that you probably understand better than I, since these continuous learning algorithms sometimes have a tendency to forget or to fail or something. There's a, a second layer of, you know, kind of watchdog algorithms that say, well, if the incidence of a specific finding is going way out of bounds, then either the radiologist is making a lot of mistakes or the AI is making a lot of mistakes. So let's, for a start, disable the AI check the cases and then go back and reiterate until things work nicely again. So this is the whole idea. But obviously this comes with uncertainties as to could such thing be on the market in the first place because there are regulatory issues that we would need to think about. And all of these things we want to, to consider during this project. And we are starting to collect data and to get the training running. And uh, we are already talking to regulations guys and ethics guys and seeing how could such a, a thing work in, in theory, you know. So structured reporting, continuous learning, kind of federated learning to some extent maybe as well. But then again, also considering how, which impact would that make into clinical routine? Would that be feasible at all? So this is a very science-driven thing, I guess. But but yeah, really taking a new perspective on AI and healthcare. Mm. Well, actually, actually, that sounds pretty cool in total. I mean, um, the sum of all of these parts. So assuming that this project actually would show uh, promising results, that all of the stages of the pipeline would be nicely developed and would work out very well. So how would you judge the impact of this project, especially for radiologists? This question goes to the two of you because both of you are actually involved in this project. I mean, I guess there would be an impact if we were able to kind of solve the regulatory issues or at least make some recommendations there. I guess the impact could be that, for example, I don't know, you could say, well, I have no experience in that. So I'll ask my friend in Hospital Z to kind of, you know, take his cases, train an AI algorithm and share that with me or whatever. Um, or I could say, well, it's very boring to classify this type of fractures. So I just learned that. And once it, it's good enough, then then let's go for it wouldn't say it would be a huge impact but it will would be a sum of small impacts maybe and i think that could be interesting but we would definitely need to solve the regulatory issues because in the current framework that wouldn't be feasible i think so maybe if i want to add a couple of points first of all i would say that eva kai is a sort of visionary project in the sense that this is one of the projects where we have involved multiple stakeholders. So for example, what Daniel was saying, it's not just that a group of informaticians, computer science people doing the data crunching, and then there is another set of radiologists who provided the data and annotation. It's not like that. So we have also one of the companies who are really into structured reporting, they're called smart reporting. Uh, so they are involved in this project. We also have people who are more into the research of business models. So in that way, it's a very comprehensive way where many stakeholders are together and we are having a sort of very initial discussion about how to move this thing forward. So I agree with you, Daniel, when you say that this is not 
let's say one big push towards a massive impact, but rather we are really opening up many channels which were not there. And some of the initial discussions that, okay, there are some solutions, but there is no business model or some of the regulatory approvals that nobody really think about when they make the startup, but then when they try to go into FDA or C stamps, then they realize, oh, we haven't thought of that. So all these small issues we are trying to address in a sort of project. So it's not really like one big impact of a clear things, but many small things that really go together in coming up with a total product. I see it like that. So maybe one thing around the question of these products, because we are talking so much about product, even though neither you nor I have a startup yet. <laughs> but uh, what really is interesting is that you have recently written these clear guidelines, right? So I guess the first question would be a sort of summary of what this guideline is about, maybe three or so take home message from these guidelines. And then we go into the more details about this. Yeah, so basically the idea behind that paper was because there are so many products on the market and kind of, you know, as an institution, as a radiology department, you might be just interested in starting to work with these solutions. So uh, you actually actively approach the vendors or on the other hand, you maybe are approached by a vendor that just wants to sell your product to you and pitches a good use case or whatever. And what we wanted to do is because, as you mentioned, this disconnect basically between healthcare and, and technical people, they probably do not understand very well each other or I don't know. But so the idea was to provide kind of a framework or a guideline where if you are approached by a company or you are approaching vendors, then these are some of the questions you need to think about if you want to make a positive impact to your patient's care. And so we, we had different things to consider there, but one of them, and we briefly touched that before, was kind of the relevance of the solution. So is this product actually solving a need? Is this something that will make a difference or is it something that is nice to have or is it even something that you know you won't be using much because you maybe have three patients to which this would, would apply in a year or something. So you know this might seem simple but these are actually things that if you don't think about it maybe if the software looks looks nice, then you just say, "Well, that's that's a good product. I want to have that." But really, you know, to to have a set of questions to go through, kind of a checklist, and then assess if that product is for you and if it meets all the requirements you may have. Right. So, first of all, we are talking about the paper which is called "To Buy or Not to Buy: Evaluating Commercial AI Solutions in Radiology." the Eclair guidelines. It is uh, published in European Radiology in 2021. So very, very recent work. Yeah, and that brings me to the question that at least in the Mikhai community, we are seeing CNN papers, I don't know, from 2014, 2015, uh, uh, where it, it more or less Mikai turned into a AI conference where we do some of the medical imaging walks. And that basically means it took six, seven years to came out, like to have such a paper where really the radiologist side or the university hospital side or hospital in general side is really represented. So why did it take so long? Why the requirement that 
people need to be serious about such a guideline to even understand yeah. whether the problem or the product, like whether there is a problem or it's just a product that's solving nothing. Yeah, I guess, I mean, probably with the hype of AI in radiology, it took a couple of years into a relevant number of startups was there and really kind of put pressure on the market, put pressure in advertising and and, and getting or wanting their product to you know be be bought and stuff and i guess that's a bit why it took so long because to get some paper like that out because until very recently there was probably little pressure to discuss these things or little need you know i have been approached by a lot of people asking me well what do you think about this because you know for example if the vendor comes up and says well i have an accuracy of 99% that that's nice you know but if you never thought about these things then you would say well obviously the, this works very nicely but then you need to ask well how was the data set distributed i mean i can get an accuracy of 99% if there was only one case positive and i say negative all the time then you know that's 99% accuracy right there so these things so i guess it took a, a bit of time until enough people were confronted with these things so that only then kind of we sat together and, and drew this paper, yeah. Mm, actually, sounds to me like uh, the intersection between the industry and research was actually not uh, complete enough to do such thing before. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I guess the connection between industry and the end consumer wasn't really that present as well. So, you know, not enough startups had approached institutions so that they felt the need, we need something to discuss with them and we need some guidelines to help us discuss. Yeah, actually, that was something I found very special about the paper, that the author's list is so uh, diverse. I mean, especially in terms of not only the nations of, of the authors, but also that there were partners from research, authors from startup companies, as well as from uh, well-established companies, such as IBM right. or Siemens. Right. right, yeah, actually, I found that very nice as well. Um, I, must, I must say, I wasn't involved in getting the group together. That was uh, all done by Patrick Umumi, who's the first author, and he coordinated everything, and that was very nice. But it, I, I think so, too. It was really helpful to have input from everybody, and we obviously drafted the manuscript together, and everybody worked on their parts, and read through everything, but I guess it was important, you know, to not be an unbalanced, I don't know, you could have the feeling, well, it's industry bashing if it's only, you know, academic people talking about things. And on the other hand, if you have only industry people in the author, author's list, you could say, well, this is advertisement in disguise. So it was kind of helpful for us to have everybody involved and to to discuss together and, and share knowledge, I guess. So we can't go into the detailed paper. So I would definitely sure. suggest again uh, to all our listeners to really go and read the paper. This is a very, very nice paper and very practical paper, basically. So one of the things that I will ask you about is one of these many questions that you have thought of. One of these is about how the algorithm were actually trained. And you talked about this thing, which I think after COVID-19, this became really clear that there are confounding factors in the data that might make algorithms look very good, even though the algorithms are not that good in terms of its performance. Can you really explain a little bit about these confounding factors in the data that might? Yeah, obviously for this question, we do not 
really think that everybody will disclose every source of training data, but I guess it's it's just to yeah get people thinking because for example, as you mentioned with the COVID, there was I guess numerous very funny let's say example where people had data sets. One was adult lungs with COVID. The other one was pediatric lungs without COVID, obviously, uh, because it was an old data set, I guess. So, I mean, if the algorithm performed well on that, it was basically just a, you know, discerning adult from pediatric lungs. So the performance was good. And I think just, you know, asking these questions and getting, you know, into a discussion and to think about that can help to see, well, okay, I can trust them with the performance they say they have. Because I understand that the training data set was balanced enough. So, for example, let's say if you have a, a training data set um, for, I don't know, liver lesions and the performance seems to be well, but then the data set has contrast-enhanced CT scans with a liver lesion and non-enhanced scans without, then this obviously makes no sense. Or even just asking the vendors, well, was this all from only one MR machine, the data, or was it from various MR machines? Because sometimes the, the kind of the noise characteristics can be very different. You know, the reconstruction settings you have may be different. And if you have a very kind of controlled data set, then even if it performs well on that, it's not said that it will perform well on your data set. If you have a different vendor for the scanners, a different scanner, maybe even field strength in MR and different reconstruction settings and different sequences, it won't work maybe just you know kind of thinking about that is it's very important and if you discover along the way that there might be something like say this adult versus pediatric lung thing then it, it's important to discuss that with the vendor or obviously you could say well i don't know let's make up an example if the ai algorithm was trained on you know caucasian male then it maybe it won't work in asian female or something like that you know and just be aware of that. It's not to say that it will matter every time, but just be aware of that and get a conversation going. Ask the vendor these questions just to, to get a feeling of how well their performance may translate into clinical routine. From my side, the next question would be about the idea of metrics of how do you do evaluation and you came up with this, like we need different types of metrics for different types of problems and what you should be aware of if you are trying to buy these products. So can you tell us a little bit more about this metrics thing? Yeah, this again is just getting people thinking about which metric may be relevant in their use case. For example, if it's a very rare condition, then accuracy obviously won't be a very good indicator unless things have been balanced out in the in the evaluation. For example, even sensitivity and specificity, which are things that we kind of know and feel is maybe not the best because again, in a low incidency setting, this may translate to a very poor positive predictive value or something because if the algorithm has a kind of a high sensitivity, it will obviously find a lot of false positives. And then this may kind of, have a negative impact on your workflow. So actually kind of balancing out these things is very important, kind of getting to think about which metric do I look for in a specific setting, you know. For example, in our project, we are talking about a lung of pulmonary embolism. And it might be well enough for the setting in my institution to say, well, 
I want an algorithm that rules that out very nicely. So I want a high negative predictive value. And I don't care if I have a lot of false positives findings. I just will look at those. But then again, I have a large number of studies I don't need to look at for that specific thing. Because I know if the algorithm says no, then with 99% probability, there won't be anything. So these are the things that we really want to make people aware of. Because even though that has been part of our training and has been in university and everything, kind of in that context, it might not be as present in, in the minds of the users. So that was basically it. Yeah. So since we are almost at the end of the conversation, I will ask one last question. And this is also something which really caught my eyes because I never personally thought about it until I saw this question in your paper. And I don't know how often radiologists also think about it, but this is really the multidisciplinary thing that you mentioned is this about the licensing model of these software as a service or like the subscription of these products. So can you tell us a little bit about what are the insights, what people should be really aware of? Yeah, again, this is, I mean, this comes back to the thing that kind of resources are limited in healthcare in general. And for example, I know, for example, I during a conference, uh, I guess it was, obviously it was before COVID, so 2019 or something. We were at this booth from a vendor and he had a very nice algorithm for cardiac stuff. And then when it when the question came down to how much would it cost, then it was surprising to see, well, okay, this is kind of a subscription thing. You pay, I don't know, a five figure per year. And then you need to think, well, how many cases will I actually do with the software? How many cases will I actually want to use the software at all? You know, so, and then you see, well, this makes no sense in terms of reimbursement. Just pay for the software because it certainly makes no sense. But there are other models where you pay per exam. And then if it's, you know, one euro, two euro or something per exam, then this makes sense. But this comes at the cost of being a cloud-based service. So, you know, a lot of things you need to consider but I guess unless there's extra reimbursement, you need to think about this upfront. So it's not, well, this is a nice tool. I want to have it. There's uh, numerous cases I can do with that. And then you go through a year of using it. You see, well, it didn't even pay for itself. So what was the use? You know, it comes down to these business thoughts that actually, for example, me as an academic person, I didn't really have much contact with before as well, because, you know, you just, things are bought and things are used and I don't care about that because I'm not the head of department but actually if one day I will be in another institution maybe then I will need to think about these things and just kind of you know getting people to think about that remembering yeah it's not like for example you know I can for my computer for my uh, smartphone I can buy software that I don't use much because I you know it's okay. I don't lose too much money, but in healthcare, it's different because resources are very limited and you need to pay extra attention to every buck you spend. Yeah. So thank you so much for this really wonderful explanation and also the discussion, because what we really learned today is that when we are talking about AI and radiology and what it really means to make radiology AI ready or the other way around is that we really have to think of all these 
different stakeholders and their interests to really make this into happen. It's not just really a monolithic of data comes in, diagnosis goes out and let's replace radiologists. <laughs> That's not gonna happen, uh, like not in the next lifetime of ours, let's put it that way. So yeah, thank you so much, Daniel, for this really wonderful discussion. And I hope our listeners have learned a lot from your experience. Thanks for having me, Anirban. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Henry. Thanks so much. <laughs>